Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Right after Marsha disappeared, there were a lot of people who thought maybe she just left. Marsha always talked about disappearing. She always talked about it. It's hard to disappear in America, and one day I'm just not going to be here. One day I'm just not going to be here, you know, over and over again, until finally one day she's just not there. Someone had said that she wanted to write a handbook for outlaws on how to disappear when she turned, what, 50? Was it 50 or 55? And it's perfect. I mean, instead of telling other people how to disappear, just disappear your damn self and be gone. She was definitely ready to move and we had discussed how we could, what she called, divest herself from Morgantown. Marcia even talked about it with a psychic sometime in the weeks before she disappeared. Deputy Chief Scott gave us a copy of the tape. 1988 in Morgantown. It's kind of hard to understand, but it's one of the last recordings we have of her voice. I'm going to move myself out of here. Mm-hmm. Do something else. It's a good choice for you. My, my problem right now is divesting myself from this scene that I'm in. I've, I've worked for almost six years. It's just, it's just quite a scene. This bar that I have in music scene and with the whole community of people that depend on it. Mm-hmm. So I feel a little guilty about removing myself, mm-hmm. but I don't really need me anymore. I really have, I, I hopefully made myself obsolete, which, mm-hmm. which is what I should do. These folks have gone along as far with you as they can, and really they're not growing any. Because I've always been there. Mm-hmm. Whenever there was trouble. You know, I worked it out. I paid for it, all right. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be there to do that. Mm-hmm. That's frightening. But they, I, I want them to know that they're capable of doing it. They are. I mean, I could have just folded up my pen and slipped quietly away. And it would have gone right on. I would never say that when there's a cutoff date, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. Not just disappear. I love hearing Marsha's voice, but it's also hard to listen to. I can hear her stress. Marcia had so many people who relied on her, and that psychic is basically telling her it's okay to leave her people behind, to go off on her own. So, yes, it's not entirely outside the realm of possibility that she would leave. She even seemed to be planning for it. But I just don't buy it. And if you knew her, you wouldn't either.
This is I Was Never There, Episode 3. I'm Karen Zellermeyer. And I'm Jamie Zellermeyer. We wanted to go back in time for this episode, back before Marsha disappeared. Because we want you to meet the Marsha we knew, the Marsha that so many people were enamored of, the Marsha that people were told they just had to meet, the Marsha that makes people cry when they think of her all these decades mm-hmm. later. Yeah. Are you going to ask us questions? Mm-hmm. They have to make me sound not nasal. Joan Pransky and Phyllis Saloke were our second interview for this project. It was a cold winter day in 2020. They both knew Marcia in her early New Jersey years. Later, my mom became friends with them too. Joan, Phyllis, and my mom always had Marcia in common, but they never talked about her until now. Phyllis has this one really vivid memory of what it was like to be around Marcia. In the early 70s, Marsha was living up on a hill in West Orange, New Jersey. At the time, an interstate highway was being built right through the neighborhood. One night, she was hosting a political study group at her house, and one of her friends noticed his car, a beige Volkswagen, was missing. Someone had rolled the car down the hill, stolen the seats, and left it in the middle of the highway construction site. When we found the car, Marsha's first instinct was to have a party on this big highway <laughs> that was closed and not open yet for traffic. So we had the party before we called the police to come because the car needed to be towed off the Sunday highway. But that was like a Marsha typical, all these people who had been talking about communes and Gandhi and with these religion with the nuns. And then afterwards we were on the Sunday highway having a party around the Volkswagen like Total Marcia in a bowl. That was Marcia in a bowl. She was always combining partying and politics. But she and Joan had a different kind of friendship that was also very Marcia. I was happy not to do political work with her because she was just this loving human being. And so our relationship was very different than most people's relationship with her. Or at least that's how I felt. I always felt like we just loved each other. She would come over and we would sit an inch away from each other Mm -hmm. and sometimes talk for hours and sometimes just sit for a very long time and just be at peace. We brought each other a lot of peace, or at least that's how I felt about it. That closeness is also how I felt, how I feel. Marsha was always building something. She couldn't sit still for long. She opened a bookstore on a major intersection in Madison that was called the Make Up Your Mind Bookstore that was going to be this place. And she brought people in to do readings before anybody was ever doing that in New Jersey. That She also had people, she had, a, she had a children's thing and then she had a political section. She also had a couch where some of her passing through travelers would end up sleeping. I mean, but it had a reputation of being like this radical bookstore in downtown Madison. She set up the bookstore as a cooperative, and lots of different people worked there. Two of them were Marco Lorano and his wife at the time, Deborah. Marco is an artist and an entrepreneur. 
He's very skinny these days. He mostly eats watermelon and sweet potatoes. But when I knew him back in the 70s, he was a big guy, physically, and he had a really big presence. Marco first met Marcia in a New Jersey hospital in the 1970s. She was getting her tubes tied at St. Barnabas Hospital, and I was in patient transport. And we were in the elevator, and uh, I took out my harmonica. And I just started gently, and she said, can you do that louder? <laughs> so I played a little louder, and, uh, and that's how it started. That's how it all started. You were playing your harmonica in the, in the hospital? In the elevator. Marcia had a perfect blend of magnetism and an eye for people, especially people who made up their own rules. From that moment in the elevator, Marco and Marcia would become close friends and collaborators. So at some point during the time that um, she had the bookstore, we decided to buy land in West Virginia and go back to the land, as they say. That's Deborah. They were having the same realizations that I had had. It was just, we're going down and buy this piece of land and live off of it. Go grow our own vegetables. We wanted to live communally. We wanted change. The land they bought turned into the mud farm. That's mud with two Ds. And it was named that because, well, West Virginia is muddy. Here's Deborah from an interview done back in the early 90s. And Marsha became Marsha Mudd, and then Debbie Mudd, and we had Josh Mudd, and Sam Mudd, and we were the Muds. We said, that's it. We have our name. That's who we are. So, Mom, what did it mean to you to move back to the land um, in rural West Virginia? For me, what I was doing felt very serious and very intentional and some days really hard because in our instance, well, I think in the instance of the mud farm and the folks over there as well, it was a group of people, none of whom necessarily shared a common ideology. We were all there for different reasons. My reason, Marsha's reason, was very political, but other people were not. And so it felt that was always a hard navigate. You know, relationships were always challenging. And on the other hand, it was a lot of fun. It just was a joyful period to feel like we were so in touch with the changing of the seasons and the cycles of the moon and having, you know, full moon parties and solstice parties. and What would you do differently? Now? Like, what, what do you mean? You do wrong? What, when you look back at that time, you think, boy, we really shouldn't have done that or we should have done that differently or I really misjudged that or was it just all, like, great? I didn't know how hard it was. I didn't know how isolated we would be from the local community, right? That there was some element back then of us and them. We were, we never integrated into the general 
population. We were always a bit of a uh, spectacle. Each community was kind of in its own little world, including the one my family was part of. During that time, it wasn't easy to get around or meet new people. There were no highways, and to start off with, we didn't even have a phone. But as Marco tells it, the Back to the Landers began to realize that there were a lot of them living in the state. It was just a great place. We, people came from all over. But it, once again, in that time, in the hills, you had the Okidokes, Susie Barefoot, the Armadillos. There were all these families in the hills up there doing exactly what we were doing, coming from all over. So there was some, there was magic going on in the hills. You know, A lot of us from an urban area, uh, there was one streetlight somewhere in the woods and we poured some concrete and we would all say we're going to go hang on the corner. Like-minded people started hearing about and making their way to the mud farm, like Mark Wasserman. We didn't know him from our time in West Virginia, but he is part of our tribe. He's in Berkeley now, and he still lives by values and ideals that he learned from his years on the mud farm. He took his teen son to Burning Man, and he raised his kids to be adventurous and also responsible. No conservatism here at all. It's like, balls out. Let's just do this thing, but let's not be stupid. Did you want to jump off that cliff? It's like, hey, you got to look at what's below first. Don't go jumping off the cliff without going down and checking out what the water's like. Back when Mark first met Marsha, he was on the cusp of his 16th birthday. He was just a kid, only two years older than Marsha's son, Michael. He and his older brother, David, who was 18 at the time, had left home and they were living on their own. They were getting ready to drive cross-country when a friend asked for a ride to West Virginia. And I was like, okay, well, no problem. We've got this big old... One-ton, fire-red, 49 Dodge pickup truck with a camper we built on the back. And we got room. Yeah, West Virginia sounds cool, no problem. The plan was to drop off their friend, drive on to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and then end up in Oregon or Washington where they wanted to buy land. But when they got to the mud farm, Mark was hooked. Well, you know, eyes as big as millstones... Or my eye, I don't remember anybody else's eyes, but I remember my eyes as big as millstones going up there like, whoa, this is way fucking cool. I'm ready for all of this. It was in this steep holler, a small narrow valley between the mountains. There was a big main house filled with books from Marsha's bookstore, an A-frame cabin, a greenhouse, a garden, and an outhouse that was made almost entirely of glass with a big mirror in front of the throne, apparently so you could see yourself shit and keep it real. Living communally was intense, and Mark loved it. Communal living for me was an overabundance of intimacy, just relentless intimacy, like it or not. And with that, of incredible helpings of compromise. On the other side of that plate was an incredible helpings of conflict. Everything was out in the open. There were no walls. There may have been some beads or fabric or there were things separating, but intimacy 
conflict, compromise, and, and really the greatest fun. It's just fun. Because with people of all ages and such different persuasions, there was always stuff going on. And I don't remember ever being told no. Mark had never met someone like Marsha before. Someone so clear about her values. Because she was so incredibly voluble and never stopped talking, only when she slept. And many of us were, you know, unformed, but incredibly willing. Marsha made it really clear to a 16-year-old guy and my brother and everybody else there, hey, feminism, gender, uh, roles of men and women, uh, and particularly just how she represented uh, what a woman can do. Mark's brother, David, has this story that captures it perfectly. I started telling some story and about some chick that was, uh, you know, I met this chick or something, or this chick somehow, and Marcia was like, uh, did she cluck? And I'm like, what? She goes, the chick, did she cluck? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, yeah. It was a girl or it was a woman, right? You know, like, anyway, she hit me. I'm like, I haven't used that word ever since. Marsha and Marco were the de facto leaders of the commune, each bringing their own style to the job. They were the intense, burning stars, the comets, whatever. They were the, they were the centers of the solar system. The commune grew to house anywhere from 15 to 40 people at any given time. They were building a new world and making new rules for it. I can remember Marcia talking about them, and so does everyone else we interviewed. Yeah, don't ride around with an empty truck. That was number one. Never own more than you could put in a Volkswagen. Keep moving. Always go to the left. Share what's in your pocket. Stay high. Don't panic, it's organic. There's no such thing as too much garlic. Always tell the truth. If you stop looking up at the sky, it's time to move on. When in doubt, take two. Marsha loved that. When in doubt, take two. Everyone on the mud farm was doing a lot of experimenting, growing, and trying to figure out how to make money without selling out. Deborah opened up a fabric store in an old school bus. Mark and Marco harvested ferns, potted them, and sold them off the back of a truck in Columbus, Ohio. Sam would go back up to New Jersey to paint houses every winter. Marco was more on the experimental side of things. He was selling pot, and he used West Virginia's plentiful and free natural gas to create some unique growing conditions in his greenhouse. And I just pumped it with gas and to see how vegetables would grow. <laughs> and tomatoes were flat, and the pot was great. It was that, we used to call it Martian pot. You didn't light anything, obviously, you know, in the greenhouse. Built out of recycled windows. But really, tomatoes were flat. Like growing, we, we simulated the conditions of Mars is what we did. So it was Martian pot. Some of the most vivid memories people have revolve around the drug-induced explorations. There was one whole month they spent sipping on peyote tea. Mark and Marco remember that time well. There was a big pot, like a big canning pot, on the stove, full of peyote tea, like 24-7. If 
for the next month, and we all drank peyote tea constantly. The collective consciousness was completely beyond anything, beyond any rock festival, beyond Mardi Gras, beyond anything, because you're you have that you're in the woods and there's creepy things going on. But some of us, it's like we just stayed in this suspended state and just morphed into you know this psychedelic existence for that month. That was quite a month. It was a phenomenal time. And being around her, as you guys know, being around her and, and the things that, that she and her kind of thinking, the things that would be engendered, the things that would happen because of that thinking, no better time. I've had great times, but no better time in terms of just exploration and adventure and the possibilities. I find it remarkable that Mark was just 16 at that time. It's so young to be living that kind of life. Growing up in a similar environment, I craved rules and boundaries. Some people and kids really need boundaries. They need walls to knock up against, and some kids do fine without the boundaries. Mark did fine without those boundaries. He thrived without those boundaries. You used to beg me for boundaries, and I was the one who was resistant to boundaries. Like a curfew? Like a curfew. You used to say, I need a curfew. And I would say, no, you don't need a curfew. I just need to know where you are all the time. But my other friends have curfews. Good, then you'll have to come home because they'll all be coming home. But for you, that sense of boundaries felt important. Right. So that's why when, I think, of, kid. when I think about Mark, it makes me uncomfortable because... Because you wanted boundaries. Because I wanted boundaries. Uh-huh. And I guess we're just all... And you want different. your kids to have those boundaries. Now, some of them may thrive without them, right? But... They'll never know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Boundaries. They were hard to come by at the mud farm, and that extended to relationships. Free love was a big part of life there. Yeah, we had open sex, and you know, and you're not supposed to fall in love. To really understand Marcia, it's important to understand her marriage. Marsha always described Sam as her rock. He provided some stability in all the zaniness and chaos. But then, Sam broke one of the mud farm rules. Practice free love, but don't fall in love. He started seeing another woman, and it became clear that he was building a life separate from Marsha. Mark remembers it really clearly. He fell in love, he broke the rule. In one of these house meetings, family meetings, he turned to me and uh, said, what should I do? And, and the answer was really very simple. I said, well, I don't think you could stop that and be happy. So I think that's where you should be. And my recollection is that um, he immediately left the meeting and left the farm and did not return. 
Amidst all of these people who adored her, Marcia had lost her anchor. And my big takeaway memory for that period of her being on the farm when Sam left um, was her shucking corn for the chickens. At that point, we had chickens, um, and she would just sit, and it was like her therapy. She would shuck corn by hand for the chickens. And that was like, at some point, she said, I can't do this anymore. And that's when she moved up to Morgantown. Morgantown is where our lives really intersected with Marcia's. It all happened at the Earth Houses. Jamie and her dad lived in Earth House, too, when they left our farm, and eventually Jamie, Sarah, and I moved into Earth House 1. Keith Brand also lived in those houses over the years. He has some great memories from that time, and when we talked to him, he greeted us with a beloved song by Hazel Dickens, West Virginia, my home. Where I belong In the dead of the night In the still, in the quiet I slip away Like a bird in flight Back to that place The place that I call home We've known Keith for a long time. He's an all-time music banjo player, and he's also the chair of the radio, television, and film department at Rowan University in New Jersey now. Back in the day, we were both bartending at the Underground when it first opened. Keith came to Morgantown as a student at West Virginia University. When he graduated, someone gave him Marsha's phone number. They hit it off, and he moved in. He remembers the Earth House as the place to be in Morgantown. You know, I remember the front door was never locked. So, you know, you could go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and some new person was somewhere in that that house. And that's one of the things that I really loved about it was, you know, it was like this gateway for all of these different communities. The door was always open. People were coming in and out, sleeping on couches. And, of course, they were buying their weed from Marsha. It was an absolutely... A life-affirming place for me because it's kind of the first family that I liked, uh, that (laughs) that I found that I actually liked. And it was Marsha, 100%. It was Marsha that imbued Earth House with that sort of open, loving spirit. The Earth House also came with all the perks of communal living. Right in the middle of town on a busy street, That meant sharing chores and cooking huge meals for everyone in the house. It was just a sweet kitchen with that old black restaurant, huge restaurant stove in there, which when you have 10 people is, you know, is about the only way I think you could cook appropriately. The other joy of communal living was partying. With a critical mass around at all times, celebrations could and did happen at the drop of a hat. That was perfect for Marcia. She even made a party out of the horror of Ronald Reagan's first presidential inauguration. I think we all knew that there was going to be an incredible political shift in January 81 when that happened. I am going to venture a guess uh, that we were all tripping. 
So mom, when I, like, I hear it, listen to Keith and I listen to sort of like people coming in and out and Marsha selling her dime bags and stuff. And then you, you're thinking, this is a great place to move in with my kids. (laughs) (laughs) Any thoughts? (laughs) I know this is Keith's interview, but. Oh, no, I want to (laughs) hear. Yeah, I mean, I guess I thought it was a stimulating kind of fun and very safe environment. It didn't feel like an unsafe environment. I don't think we ever treated you like kids. I mean, you were, we, I think we treated you like, you know, you were two other people that lived in this house. I, I, I don't ever remember talking down to you or, you know, anything like that. So you were just like two more people that lived in this house. During my Earth House years, my friendship with Marsha really solidified. We would hang out at the diner after dropping my kids off at school in the morning. We would look after each other and just be there. It was like that for Keith and so many others. Those years were very formative for me. And Marsh is at the center of it. You know, just this, it was like a whirlwind of activity. And I always felt like she was the one spinning the plates. I always felt like Earth House was Marsha's lighthouse attracting the island of lost children. And that's kind of what it felt like to me. It's like, oh, I found my tribe here. There's just no way that Marcia would purposefully leave all that she had built without a trace. And she certainly wouldn't just walk away from her kids. It wasn't her way. I don't know. Stress can cause people to act out of character, and she had a lot to feel stressed about. On top of the Earth Houses, Marcia had two other businesses she was running, neither of which were really supporting themselves by legal means. I remember she was selling pot. You know, I, I I just always assumed that pot was just kind of making everything kind of work uh, economically. Money was always a means to an end for Marcia. It was never about personal gain. She lived modestly, she wasn't into possessions, and she hated capitalism. But she did love pushing boundaries and the fact that selling weed put her outside the system. Practically speaking, the pot business was useful. It definitely helped keep all her other endeavors going. Then again, maybe it was all starting to be too much. But once it's sorted out, it's going to happen. And it should happen by June. You should be able to be on your way. On a pattern, on a track. Uh-huh. On a new, new way. Yeah. I'm ready. I Was Never There is a Wonder Media Network production. It's hosted by me, Karen Zellermeyer, and my daughter, Jamie. And it's based on our lives. It's produced by Allie Wolner, Lindsay Cradowill, Adesua Agbonile, and Liz Smith. It's edited by Jenny Kaplan and Liz Smith. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan, Jamie Zellermeyer, and Karen Zellermeyer. Production assistance by Alessandra Tejeda. 
Our music supervisor is Sarah Tembekchian. The theme music is Take Me Home, Country Roads by John Denver, performed by Brandy Carlisle. Special thanks to Larry Dowling for allowing us to use his interview with Marco Lorano, and to Chip Hitchcock for allowing us to use tape from his 1991 interviews with people in Marsh's orbit. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate your help in getting the word out. Send the show to a friend and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help others discover I Was Never There. <laughs>